Hi, I'm Dave Merlino. I'm Dustin Sweet, and this is the Know Their Story podcast. We talk to veterans about their time in service, returning home from war, and transitioning out of the military. Hopefully along the way, we'll inspire you to do the same with a veteran in your life. Because sometimes all it takes to make the world a better place is sitting down with a friend to know their story. Welcome back to another week of the Know Their Story podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back, Dustin. How you doing? Welcome back, Dave. I'm doing great. Good job getting our name right this week. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. that's two in a row for you. Yeah, just a slight little pause where I was like, uh, I'm getting old. No. <laughs> uh, but a, a very nice episode this week. We are um, visiting with the United States Navy uh, we've had a, a couple episodes with the Navy, uh, but our guest today served 35 years in the U.S. Navy, retired as a rear admiral along the way, served in Vietnam and um, uh, <laughs> Gulf Storm, Desert Storm in the Middle East, <laughs> uh, somewhere where we've been for quite a while, uh, served as an arms control negotiator for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, which some of those negotiations involve two countries that have been in the news lately. Some of you may have heard of, uh, I'll leave it at that, but also helped search for the wreckage of Korean Air Flight 007 uh, with, uh, would we say the help of the Russians or because <laughs> of the Russians or with the Russians? Uh, anyways, in tandem. <laughs> please welcome uh, Admiral Bill Center. Thank you for joining us, Bill. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Devin. Dustin. <laughs> add another one to devlin we're doing great my mom calls him justin even though i've known him since college <laughs> so it's coming how are you today sir uh terrific well, good to hear good to hear uh well I'll, um i'm gonna i'm gonna jump right to it i feel like we have a lot to talk about today um so uh dave if you don't mind i'm gonna ask my first question the ceremonial uh, asking of the that's question. right admiral how did you find yourself to be in the armed services recruiting office <laughs> that, that's a good question people often assume that i came from a military family but that's not really the case my dad was in the army in world war ii but he was a chaplain's assistant he was a trained uh, classical pianist and when they found he could play the piano, they made him a chaplain's assistant so he could play the organ and piano in the chapel. That's great. And he never left the States. He was at Fort Dix. So that was the family military experience as far as I was informed of it. And uh, But when I was about 13, somehow I came into possession of a book by the great Hanson Baldwin, who was the military editor for the New York Times, uh, during World War II and after, and it was called Sea Fights and Shipwrecks. Yeah. Just some great naval adventures, Navy adventures, yeah. and maritime adventures, and then there was the story of the USS Houston. Houston was the last major American warship afloat in the Western Pacific after Pearl Harbor, and she went down in an incredible battle in the Sunda Strait off of the uh, Indonesia uh, very early on, uh, shortly after Pearl Harbor, in a, a battle with an overwhelming Jam Japanese uh, force. And only about 350 of her crew, or 1,500, survived. The captain himself 
was lost in the battle. He won the Medal of Honor for that battle. His name was Harold Rooks, and he was actually from Seattle, uh, where I live now. I actually got to meet one of his sons at one point. Cool. And that crew uh, was among those who were prisoners in the camp, the infamous camp made famous in the movie Bridge on the River Kwai. But the story of the battle, as told by Hanson Baldwin, was so vivid, I just, I just went, that is me. That is, that is just where I belong. I don't know why, but there was something about it. The idea of being the captain of a cruiser and be able to lead men in that way just impacted me so forcefully. And the day I graduated from high school, I went down and enlisted in the Navy. Uh, I went to boot camp, and <laughs> two weeks into boot camp, I got called into the company commander's office and told uh, the Seaman Recruit Center, we're going to have to discharge you. <laughs> oh, my God. What have I done? He said, yeah, we're going to send you to uh, ROTC at UCLA. And he wow. said, you know, you did really well on your exams, and uh, we're going to send you up to UCLA to go to ROTC. So I went there, and uh, I was pretty happy to be at UCLA, and I was in the band and having a good time. And I loved ROTC. I loved the Navy. They let me go on a ship. First time I set foot on the ship, I felt like I was home. And uh, I had some friends that had gone to the Naval Academy, so I applied there. And I was fortunate to be submitted because I was just about to flunk out of UCLA because I spent all my time on band and ROTC and not too much time on physics or Russian, <laughs> the other classes I was taking. So I ended up at the Naval Academy and I graduated there in 1968. And the rest is history. Uh, my goal when I joined the Navy was to be the captain of a cruiser and I was fortunate enough to accomplish that goal. And... Uh, it was everything I dreamed it would be. How long? How long were you a cruiser captain for? Well, most ca most commanding officer tours in the Navy in in my era were two years long. I think now they may be a little shorter because the number of ships is a lot smaller and right. the opportunity for, for command is less. Uh, two years is enough time to really hit your stride. I was lucky. I was the captain of three ships in my career. I had a command of a minesweeper. The first command was in 1970, let me get the year right, 72, wow. four and a half years after I graduated from the Naval Academy, I had command of a ship. That's crazy. Shocked the hell out of me. <laughs> and Admiral Mike Mullen, who you might recognize the name, was uh, one of my classmates and a good friend, also from Los Angeles like me. Uh, he had command of a gasoline tanker, an AOG. We were the two youngest commanding officers in the Atlantic fleet. It was only years later that we figured out that the only reason they gave lieutenants command of those ships is because nobody with a lick of sense would take the job. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I survived that barely. And uh, in 1982, I got command of a frigate, USS Meyercourt, 1058, a Knox-class frigate, great ship. And we had some adventures, made a Westpac deployment. And then I got command of Reeves in 1987. I was CO of Reeves from 87 to 89. And I was really fortunate to have uh, command three times. When I went to command of the frigate, my boss, and people don't always think about that, but 
commanding officer of ships do have bosses. Yeah. My squadron commander said to me, uh, are you qualified for this job? And I said, yes, sir. You know, I've, I've taken the command qualification exam. I passed my Earl board. And he said, well, I'll tell you, you're not qualified. He said, you'll be qualified the day you finish your tour. <laughs> and that was his way of politely saying there's going to be a lot of on-the-job training. And he was exactly right. I mean, even though I'd had command before and I'd been executive officer of the destroyer, I, I made mistakes. I made mistakes as CO first time, made mistakes as XO the second time, made mistakes as CO the third time. And I won't say I didn't make any mistakes on the cruiser, but by then I had pretty much figured it out. And that meant that it was a lot more fun for me and my whole crew because uh, we, we, we had some incredible adventures and uh, we're still very close, the crew and me. <laughs> oh, that's great. Mistakes are fine to make, just don't make them multiple times. <laughs> I had, when I was teaching at the University of Washington, that's a great comment, Dave. I had taught international students and every quarter at the beginning, or every year actually, we had a new cadre of international students every year. We would get together and we'd have a mission statement and a vision, and we'd have some guiding principles for our group. And one of the guiding principles we had put up on the board was learn from our mistakes. And one of the fellows who was a uh, physics professor from Africa, he said, he, they used to call me Professor Center, even though I wasn't a professor. He said, Professor, that's not good enough. Learn from your mistakes. It should just say, learn from mistakes. He said, we can learn from other people's mistakes. Nice. And we will avoid making those. We will make new mistakes, better mistakes, mistakes that have never been made before. <laughs> Preach it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Us and I have made plenty of those mistakes never made before. Uh, that's right. <laughs> All new mistakes, guaranteed. So, you you kind of did the, the Seinfeld equivalent of uh, I graduated the academy, yada, yada, yada. I was an admiral. There's a bit <laughs> to those yadas. Uh, one of them I was actually thinking about because we talked on the phone a week ago. Uh, this last weekend, April 30th, was the 47th anniversary of, uh, of us getting the heck out of Saigon. And you were serving that day, were you not? I was. I was executive officer on USS Blandy, and uh, wow. we were deployed to the Mediterranean. And uh, I had spent a good part of my career uh, in Vietnam one way or another. My, when I was still at the Naval Academy, we had the opportunity to go to Vietnam for our summer training, believe oh, wow. it or not. <laughs> it's kind of incredible. Now people just shake their head and go, they did that? I mean... Uh, a group of about 40 uh, midshipmen that were just starting their final year. We embarked on an aircraft in uh, Andrews Air Force Base. We flew to Kansas. Then we flew to Travis Air Force Base in California. We flew to Hawaii. We flew to Guam. We flew to the Philippines, you know, gassing up along the way and no sleep. And just, we were on like an Air Force cargo plane. I mean, it was <laughs> And uh, we got off there immediately on a bus, went off of a bumpy road that some people listening to this will recall from Clark Air Force Base to Subic Bay in the Philippines. It was just getting dark, and uh, they pulled up to the brow on the USS Sacramento. We climbed up on the brow, and as soon as we were on board, the ship got underway. Sacramento wow. was uh, 
a replenishment ship. It was what we called an AOE. It carried ammunition, fuel, and even some food. And it was special because it was fast as hell. We had four of those AOEs, and they could keep up with the aircraft carrier. So if wow. the aircraft carrier had to go somewhere in a hurry, those ships could go with them, and they carried jet fuel and, and bombs and stuff, so they could really help. Uh, so they were real war-fighting ships, even though they were supply ships. Anyway, say. they speeded out to Yankee Station, which was in the middle of the Gulf, where the three uh, Navy carriers operated. Right. And uh, we heeled off Sacramento on board of John Hancock. And as soon as we touched deck on the Hancock, they took us from there into another heel, and they flew us up to the North SAR Station, Search and Rescue Station, which is just the farthest north the ships we had up there. They had always had a cruiser up there, a guided missile cruiser, and a destroyer. They dropped us on board, me and one of my classmates, uh, Steve Froggett, they dropped us onto the USS Feckler. And uh, we spent the next 45 days. First of all, we were uh, chasing the chasing the cruiser around. I think it was Starrett that was there at the time, the cruiser Starrett. And then after about two weeks of that, we went in and did um, what we called Operation Sea Dragon, which was naval gunfire off the coast of North Vietnam, not South Vietnam. I mean, we, were, we were in there exchanging gunfire with the uh, North Vietnamese. And it was a big adventure for me uh, because, you know, we were in actual combat and there were bullets whizzing by them. I remember the first firefight we were in, I was up on the signal bridge and I could hear the sound of the bullets coming in, the big, you know, uh, short artillery coming in. And the thing that surprised me was how much they sounded like the bullets sound in the movies. <laughs> I always thought that was kind of just a hokey thing they did in the movies so that you would know there were bullets coming. No, they really sound that way. Yeah. <laughs> and um, fortunately, we didn't get hit on that. Uh, ironically, neither Steve Froggett or I were able to get our combat action ribbon because legally, midshipmen were, were not allowed to be in combat. So <laughs> that was okay by me. Yeah. <laughs> and he went back, and but I by we we did some more adventures in Westpac and. And then we were back at the academy, and I by then I was a destroyer man through and through. I went, man, first chance I get, I'm going to go. And not only that, but I want a ship that's based in the Western Pacific. And I selected at service selection the uh, USS Henry W. Tucker, which was another uh, gearing class ram destroyer. And these are old World War II, you know, so they were long in the tooth, but they were the workhorses there. And... Uh, she was based in Yokosuka, Japan, and we would deploy from there for usually like 90 days at a time, sometimes a little less, go down, spend 45 days in the combat zone doing whatever they wanted us to do. And then we would go for uh, a Liberty port. And uh, our CO had been the Naval Attaché in Hong Kong on his previous tour. So whenever he got to ask for Liberty port, he always wanted to go to Hong Kong. And I loved Hong Kong, so that was <laughs> fine by me. We'd go to Hong Kong and then we'd turn around and go back to the combat. You know, we'd spend like usually four or five days there and go back to the combat zone for another 45 days, turn around, go back to Yoko, two weeks, three weeks in Yoko, turn around, do the whole thing over again. And uh, <laughs> I, I loved it. I mean, because it was training, training, training. I learned so much and it 
doesn't surprise me that there was another uh, guy that was a J.O. with me on there, a guy by the name of J.B. Hinkle, who also was selected for uh, Admiral. And uh, that, I think, had a lot to do with the great training we got during that first assignment on board the Henry W. Tucker. Cool. Anyway, I went to Destroyer School, our department head school, and uh, I wanted to be in San Diego since I'm a Southern California boy, and we had a new son on the way. And so I asked to be chief engineer on an old destroyer just like the one I'd been on. And lo and behold, I got those orders, went there, bought a new house, all good. Two months later, they changed the home port of the ship to Yokutska, Japan. <laughs> <laughs> Turned right around and went back for another tour. And it was a good thing. And then that was the end, really, of my time in Vietnam. So between 1967 and 1972, I was there. Uh, a lot of the time. Uh, I was in country a few times doing uh, liaison missions and things like that and traveling to and from the ship. Good day at one sea story. Can't avoid it. My last time coming out of there on my way uh, back to the States to get command of the minesweeper, they sent me in uh, to Da Nang and I caught a ride on a one a, a, a C-130 down to Consinute, uh, got in the BOQ there. The only flight to Japan every day was a medevac that left at midnight. So I got my name on the list, and they, but there was a quarantine, and you couldn't come or go from the Air Force Base or be around town after 10 p.m. So I had to be at the base by 10 p.m. First two nights, didn't make the cut, didn't get on the plane. <laughs> The third night, ah, finally, I made it on the plane. So I'd been sleeping in the airport for two nights, you know. At 6 a.m., I'd wake up and go back to the BOQ and try to get some breakfast. And it was kind of crazy. Well, I went up, and back in those days, we all carried a yellow shot record with us, along okay. with our orders. And we had to show our shot record. Well, I showed this young NCO behind the desk there at Tonsonute my uh, shot record. And he's, well, I'm sorry, sir, you're, this shot is out of date. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. It was one day out of date. And I was so ticked. I said, do you have a pen? He, he said, well, yes, I do. I said, can I borrow it? And I took it. And I don't remember what the numbers were, but I changed the number and I made it so that it was like two days from being expired. That is I said, you that better is... check it again. <laughs> he, he said, oh, I see. I must have made a mistake. <laughs> I said, I promise I will get the shot before I fly back to the States, which I did. But it, that is that know, is some fine attention to detail on his part. Fine attention to detail. <laughs> I never got involved in any in-country combat there, but I did get subjected to the in-country uh, conditions, and they were hard enough to make me really respect the guys that were there. Anyway, let me finish that story to your question. And when it when I got the word of the fall of Saigon, I thought I had kind of left Vietnam behind me and I learned a lot of valuable stuff there and valuable lessons. And I lost a lot of classmates and friends there in the Marines and even some Navy guys that were SEALs and two guys that were on board ship. We had one ship that went down due to a collision with an Australian aircraft carrier. And one of my classmates was killed in an inboard explosion mm. on board uh, one of the cruisers. And... 
I thought I kind of got over it. And then I heard about the fellow Saigon. I was pissed off for a solid year. I mean, I was just not fit company to be around. I feel now really bad for the crew. I was executive officer that's like second in command on a destroyer. And I must have been a real asshole. I just... And I it, I didn't really understand, you know, why I was pissed until later on. About... Uh, after that assignment, I came here in 1976 to uh, University of Washington and had time to reflect. And it mm -hmm. suddenly hit me that I was having a kind of a post-traumatic uh, response. And I went through the same thing again when I heard them taking the troops out of uh, Afghanistan. Yeah. Not because I didn't think it was the right thing to do, but the first thing I thought it was about all the families of they lost people in Afghanistan and all the soldiers and Marines and airmen that lost friends in Afghanistan and all the people that served in Afghanistan and busted their butt to do a good job. Very, very frustrating. Very frustrating. It is. We're so mission oriented. We want to do well. And, uh, you know, all I could say is. Now I have a friend, uh, Geraldine Brousseau, who runs an organization called Peace Trees Vietnam. And she takes Vietnam vets back to Vietnam. Uh, yeah. And it's very therapeutic. And one of the most therapeutic things about it is the Vietnamese people are very welcoming. They're very hospitable. And even though they know we did a lot of bad stuff, like leaving tons and tons and tons of unexploded ordnance all over the countryside and right. Agent Orange and killing civilians, not on purpose, but, you know, yeah. happened anyway. They, they respect the fact that we were trying to help. <laughs> as misguided as we might have been in our efforts, we were trying to help. And now I think the relationship between Vietnam and the United States is on a very good footing, and that, that gives me a lot of comfort. But uh, it was a stressful day. It was a stressful year, and I, I, you know, I felt the same way again, like I said, about Afghanistan. And I know a lot of Afghanistan vets uh, still feel that. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah, it is. It's like having the rug pulled out from under you. Uh, just, I mean, obviously there was a lot of decision making going. They didn't just wake up one day and be like, "Hey, let's leave." But the execution—it <laughs> might—it might have been better if that is what had happened. You know, it might have been a faster. No, the thing that I regret most—I don't mind saying this here—about Afghanistan is, I think we were very right and justified to go into Afghanistan. I would think we went there for the right reasons. And I think we had a really good chance of pulling that off. There was two things that got in our way. The biggest one was then we started a war with Iraq. Yeah. We had enough stuff and enough people and enough wherewithal to do Afghanistan right, but we didn't have enough to do them both and do them both right. right. And that just made it too freaking hard. We just killed the Navy, and, I mean, the Air Forces, let me get it right. We killed the Army and Marine Corps for 10 years. We yeah. just beat the crap out of them, and uh, it, it shouldn't have been that way. And the other thing is, we couldn't accept the new realities of the post-Cold War world, which right. meant that the military had to do business a different way. And we kept saying, well, we don't do nation building. Well, the hell you don't. I mean, if you broke it, you bought it. 
if you go into a place like Afghanistan, you're going to do nation building or you're not going to get the job done. Right. And a lot of folks back here didn't, you know, buy into that for one reason or another. Once you're on the ground, you see if you can't, as we used to say in Vietnam, win the hearts and minds of the people, yeah. you're not going to get there. And so I, I regret it because we could have done it, you know, yeah. could have done it. We say in Vietnam, we could have done it if it wasn't for the political constraints. I'm not sure. I, I never have necessarily agreed with that. I think we could have done it if we went on the side of the North Vietnamese. We were just kind of blinded by the fact that communism was bad. Therefore, you know, Ho Chi Minh must be a bad guy. But he was actually probably the true patriot and the true... The, yeah, uh, and the part where the OSS trained him and we were like buddy-buddy with him leading into that, it's just a... Yeah. It's shocking to read about learning into this project because I didn't know anything about Vietnam when I when we started <laughs> this project. And so, you know, what a betrayal. Just, oh. it, it You know, it would have been a really short war if we went on his side. Yeah. And yeah. we just had this blind spot. You know, we figured all communists are the same and the, the Chinese and... Vietnamese must be great buddies, which they are not now and never were. Never were, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, the domino theory and all of that. Um, sometimes bumper stickers can lead you astray. Yeah. I, I was actually, a couple months ago, reading an article. I was doing a lot of study on game theory. And it, one of them was an article about how game theory applies to you know, a lot of our wars and conflicts and a lot of our politicians and leaders haven't figured out the game that we're playing now, <laughs> that it's it's a different world and it's not, you know, it's not about, you know, who's on top, the, the polls uh, attacking, you know, it's, it's a different game with different outcomes and a lot of uh, politicians don't understand that yet and that's, until they do, we're going to have a tough time with, you know, when you're talking about urban uh, conflict and, and uh, you know, non, it's, it's not uniform against uniform anymore. <laughs> no, it's much more complicated. And, you know, the role of the military is so much broader than it was before. You know, we're not just a blunt instrument. The military is not just a blunt instrument. I. <laughs> In, the, in my career, my 35-year career in the Navy, there were two, rec well, one was during my career and one came right after. Two, two slogans that really made an impact on me. Uh, one was, when I first joined, one of the Navy recruiting slogans was, it's not just a job, it's an adventure. Yeah, well, I remember. you know how troops are. We, we modified it a little. Our version out in the fleet was, it's not just a job, it's a major inconvenience. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an adventure. And, you know, I, I joined the Navy to see the world and I got to do that. I'm grateful for it. And now, you know, for a long time when people would say to me, thanks for your service, I didn't know what to say. And then I took to saying, well, if you want to thank me, help a wounded warrior. And I felt comfortable with that. But nowadays... When somebody says, thank you for your service, I say it was a privilege because it was a privilege. And uh, I don't make light. I recognize that it was an honor and a privilege to serve my country and I would do it again. The other slogan was about a decade and a half ago, it was the Na uh, America's Navy. 
a global force for good. That's the slogan. That's the slogan for this century. I mean, that should be America's military, a global yep. force for good. We do whatever is required. If we have to go to a place like Rwanda and Burundi to solve a cholera crisis, if we have to feed the hungry on the Horn of Africa, if we have to do type, you know, relief from the uh, tsunami in Indonesia, yep. we don't go, well, that's not our job. We go there because we can do things nobody else can do and we can do it better than anybody else. And all the stuff we do in support of humanitarian operations, the peacekeeping operations, makes us better able to do combat operations because those logistics things and everything as the Russians are seeing in Ukraine, if you don't have your logistics together, forget it. Yeah. And, you know, it's the same logistics, whether you're shooting bullets or shooting food. And uh, so we I, uh, just have to realize, you know, we can't just say, well, you know, that's not my job. I, I saw an interview and it's really struck. I can hardly even tell this story. And uh, when we were doing this operations in Somalia, when Somalia was having all this trouble, we sent a battalion of Marines in there. And uh, <laughs> the first thing I saw was, uh, you know, there was people, well, those guys don't even know why they're there. Well, the, the reporters would go up to a random Marine, stick a microphone in his face and say, why are you here? And man, they could tell you just right to the point. You know, we're here to keep the peace and make sure these people get taken care of and get food and, you know. Anyway, one of the Marines got killed there and so they went and stuck a microphone in his father's face and said, well, how do you feel about your son dying in Somalia? My father said, my son died trying to feed the hungry. He said, there's a lot, you know, so there's a few less, <laughs> a few more noble things that you could die for. He knew what he was doing and, uh, you know, he, he wouldn't have had any regrets and he doesn't want us to have any regrets. We're sorry, but he was doing something important. And that's, that's hard. Not everybody's turned that page yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, people see the military and it comes up, you know, there's detractor. I won't get into the names. I'm sure you, everyone can guess. There's detractors in Congress who always want to go after the military budget as if everyone in the military is an 11 Bravo infantry <laughs> grunt waiting to go to war. Uh, yeah, a lot of our budget is hospital ships and and medical staff, and we're the first ones there, like you're saying, for when, you know, in, in Malaysia and everywhere else, like. You can uh, use a reverse osmosis water purification unit for a lot of good things besides uh, just combat. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> when I hear people that want to cut the military budget, I would tell them, I agree. We should cut the military budget, but we have to be very careful about how we do it. And I'm reminded when I was a kid in uh, growing up in California and Los Angeles, we had a bishop in our church and he said one time, I just wish more of the people who were criticizing the church 
were members of the church because then they'd really know what's wrong with it. And, <laughs> you know, there's plenty of guys, you know, I bet you couldn't find a military guy around who couldn't say, well, we could cut this or we could cut that. Right. There's yeah. places we could make cuts. And interestingly enough, a lot of the cuts that the military guys would like to make are things that the congressmen don't want to cut. Right. You know, uh, back 20 years ago, we were still building tanks that the Army didn't want because <laughs> Congress didn't want to close the tank factory. Yeah, because it was in their district. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, it's tough. I don't yeah, I mean, light of it because it's it's very hard. And the whole science of uh, getting the military to have the right capabilities and the right manpower and everything is really complicated. And it's so hard because we tend to look backward when we're doing it instead of trying to guess the future. I know we beat President Trump up a lot over the Space Force, but doggone it. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's here it comes. You know, I just want to remind everybody, though, that they promoted Captain Kirk to Admiral Kirk, not General Kirk. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I did. I did 10 years, almost 10 years in the government. And I could I could go into my old agency right now. And there's plenty of plenty of bloat that can be cut out of that. I always joke, though, that the problem is that the, you know, politicians be like okay well we'll cut their budget 10 percent, and then all they do is just cut every program by 10 percent, which means the bloated programs are still 90 percent funded and the ones you really need just got a 10 percent shave <laughs> like if if you want to do it you got to hire some auditors who are going to go in line by line well, and who have been yes. involved and who really really know well, yeah. you know, the, the way to do it is I, I have a business card i this is the first business card i've ever had that said retired on it and if I could, I'd hand you one. But at the, on the bottom, it says, uh, nothing is impossible to the person who doesn't actually have to do it or pay for it. <laughs> and so if you want to cut an agency, the way to do it is go and let the people there say, okay, we're, you know, your current budget is $10 million a year, and we're going to make it $9 million a year. Okay, 10% cut. You guys come back and tell me how you want to spend the nine million dollars yep. and how you want to organize and get that job done. Uh, we did that here in the Navy in the Pacific Northwest, 1995. When I came here, uh, the day I came, before I came, there were 13 major commands here that all reported to somebody outside of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, whether wow. it was in D.C. or Hawaii or San Diego or somewhere. And I'm talking like hospitals, ammunition depots, supply centers, uh, a, a, a air station, a submarine base, a shipyard, a nuclear repair facility, all different. And uh, the Navy sent me out and said, you take charge of all, all of those guys and integrate them into one business. And to help you do your job, we're going to cut your budget 10% every year. Nice. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> and, you know, for about the first three months, I was very resentful of the budget cuts. But then I realized that if it wasn't for the budget cuts, I couldn't do my job. Because when I told yeah. everybody we have to change, the first question to say is why? And I, the answer for me was, well, because I'm cutting your budget by 10%. And they go, oh. You know, it gets our attention, focuses them, 
and uh, we worked together and I did what I said. I asked them how to do it and we came up with a good plan. And the plan we developed here, well, we called it regionalization back then, uh, for integrated uh, bases, uh, was the one that we adopted throughout the whole Navy. And it wasn't me that did it, it was all the people that were working with me that came up with these plans. So we had like an integrated HR business, an integrated IT business, an integrated supply business, an integrated MWR across the board. And we did save money and uh, we did get the job done. And not only that, we didn't just save money, but we were better at the end. We could do the yep. job better because we were working as one team. Right. And right. It was helpful. Yeah, I, I joked when I was a supervisor, we had a plane turned around for a, an emergency. We'll get someone, someone went a little batty on the plane. And of course, you know, when that happens, there's 17 different agencies there. And I'm up there with my officers and I'm trying to get answers. And I literally was on the radio with a phone in one hand. And each of my officers had two phones just answering people's questions. People who were so afraid that someone would ask them what's going on at the airport and they wouldn't have an answer that they're well I'm trying to solve it are asking me questions I joked with my chief later I'm like everyone who called me because they wanted to be the first to report to our boss that I could have reported to we can probably just fire <laughs> we don't need them I could have just gone straight to them <laughs> so it didn't go over well but I you know I thought it was one funny. of the other rules I learned in my years in the navy uh that has never let me down is the first report is always wrong. Yeah. So yeah. all those urgent early reports, you know, if you just catch your breath, let the folks on the scene have time to sort it out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Get a more accurate that, report. That that piece of trust has come up in conversation before. You know, the um the willingness to trust the guys on the ground. Yeah. And and assume that they want the same best outcomes that you do uh, really cuts down a lot of the worry time. You know, if you can take that breath and, and step back and say, well, I think that's one of the strengths of the American military. Yeah. I think, I don't think you'll find that many senior officers that don't trust the troops. Yeah. In, in a crisis. Uh, you know, <laughs> this is another quick C story, but it, it makes the point. Um, and it, it relates kind of back to the current events. You know, the Russians lost a ship a couple weeks ago, Moscow. Yep, yep. Well, that ship, same age as the cruiser I commanded. I, that was a cruiser, and I commanded a cruiser, except it was about 20% bigger, a big, tough ship, but about the same yep. size crew, about 500 men. Here's the difference, two differences, a couple of differences. The Russian crew of 500 probably included 100 officers. My crew of 500 included 25 officers, okay? So we had a ratio of one officer to 11 enlisted men, and the Russians have a ratio of one officer to four enlisted men. Whoa. And the officers do all the technical work. Anything that requires any kind of training, it's all officers. They just like cook and paint and clean, and they're snuffies, and they're not expected to be heard from or do, you know, they don't. nobody cares about their opinion. You know, we care about the opinion of our troops. So we give them responsibility. I, I, you know, I one time was escorting some Chinese admirals through the submarine base at Bangor. We went aboard one of our 
boomers out there and I took them down to the launch control center on the submarine and I had one of our E5 fire control techs explain to them the whole launch system and the, everything and the Chinese admirals were convinced that that was an officer in enlisted clothing. I mean, they could not believe that there was a... Uh... The Chinese Navy's come a long way. Russian Navy, not so much. Well, getting back to Moscow, two days after I was relieved of command of Reeves by my replacement, one of our F-18s intentionally dropped a 500-pound bomb directly on the Reeves, scored a direct hit. And uh, you say, well, how'd that happen? Well, they were supposed to be hitting a target that was about five miles away, and they got a little disoriented. And so I say that it was intentional because they did hit what they were aiming at. They were just aiming at the wrong the thing. Wrong. Uh, and it was just forward of the bridge. And so the, the captain was actually holding a meeting with some of the department heads up on the bridge at the time it happened, and the communications on the bridge were knocked out. So there was no communications between the captain and the officer of the deck on the bridge and the damage control teams. The damage control teams that I had spent the last two years training, one of our first class HTs, damage control, damage control expert, took charge, went forward there, and in 20 minutes they had out the fire and the flooding, they had everything under control. And if we had wanted to, we could have shot down that offending SOB as he was fleeing the scene of the crime because our after battery, missile battery, was still intact. So we absorbed basically uh, the same hit only on a smaller ship than the Moscow absorbed. Uh, plus, you know, they have these automatic uh, defense systems just like we do, our close-in weapons right. systems. Either they weren't turned on or they weren't working properly. They should have been able to engage those missiles on the way in automatically without any human intervention. Uh, another story, USS Stark, one of our other ships uh, in the Gulf during the Iran-Iraq War, and I can only get the year right. I think it was 1987, 86. The Iraqis came out there and fired, one of the Iraqi fighter pilots fired a couple of Exocet missiles, French air-to-surface mm -hmm. missiles at the Stark, scored a direct hit, killed 35 guys, I think, and blew up big freaking hole in the ship. Should have gone down. But the captain and the crew said, nah, not happening. They they fought for two hours without the fire, stopped the flooding, took the ship back into port under their own power. Now that is because we trust our troops to use their initiative, you know, improvise, adapt, overcome. You know, next senior man, step forward and take charge. And you can see why the Ukrainian military is being successful and why the Russian military is not. Yeah. The Ukrainian military was trained on the U.S. model. And even if there's numerical superiority and firepower superiority on the Russian side, the Ukrainians... They Those don't five minutes really matter. To yeah. tell them what to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when 80% of your crew isn't ever trusted to make a single decision, yeah. when They're stuff goes bad. Make a decision, you know. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting, you know, Bill, you um your career spanned our uh rotation from a, a into an all-volunteer force. 
Um, and I wonder if you uh, have some thoughts on that. Um, Absolutely. I, mean, I, know, I know that I've got some thoughts on it. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> so I'd love to hear yours. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it was, you know, it was a good thing. It was one of the best things that ever happened in the military. It really raised the level of professionalism and particularly improved the level of leadership. Um, you know, in all the services, we started holding the leaders responsible for keeping people in the service. And wow. people don't stay if they're not being well led. Yep. And uh, in the Navy, we had to report, uh, you know, if you're a commanding officer, you had to put on your fitness report what your retention rate was every time a fitness report went in, in ex absolute numbers. And so there was no kind of whitewashing that. And it, we started doing real leadership training, professional leadership training, and it's it's been really good thing. Uh, and I will say, as a footnote to that, women in the military has been a really good thing. Uh, yeah. Women in combat has been a good thing. Uh, you know, you need all the smart people you can get, and by some accident of nature, about half the smart people turn out to be women. And, uh, you know, they look at the world differently than we do, and they see things we don't see. And, you know, when you're in combat, you need imagination, you need innovation, you need courage. And those women got it in spades. And, you know, I think the military has gotten better across the board uh, since women have been involved in at, at all levels and in every part of the military. But the all-volunteer force, for all its successes, and I would say, I like to say it has succeeded far beyond the success, uh, the uh, projections of the most forceful pro proponents of the idea. It was better than anybody ever thought it would be. And people thought it would be okay, but just way beyond that. And so nowadays, when we hear calls for return to the draft, uh, there's not a lot of enthusiasm in the military right. ranks because uh, we don't need any more people. We just need the best people we can get. And we, we can afford to be pretty choosy about who we bring into the military these days, and that's a good thing. Uh, I think what that call for return to the draft is really reflecting partly is one of the unintended consequences of the all-volunteer force is a gap, a growing gap, in some respects, between the military culture and the civilian culture. Uh, so many people don't have anybody or know anybody that served in the military anymore. Uh, you know, fewer and fewer people in Congress have served in the military. There's only one member of the Supreme Court that served in the military. And uh, you could go through that list, but it's not good for our country to have that gap there. We need to understand each other. Some of the things I would do to try to bridge the gap is I would, you know, we have some schools, the war colleges and the Army, Navy, and the Air Force. We've got the Marine Corps University back at Quantico. We've got the uh, Naval Postgraduate School at Monterey. They're really outstanding schools. And businesses would pay good money to send their executives to those schools. Yep. And we should take half the slots in our premier schools and open them up for civilian wow. businesses to send their people there, and that we should take the officers that are displaced from those seats and send them to civilian universities. I had the university. I had the chance to go to a civilian university, and it was eye-opening for me 
and it was eye-opening for my classmates in the civilian university. And you know, mm -hmm. when I was a, I was a young 1976, I came to UW, and my classmates would say to me, "Well, you're not like other military officers." So <laughs> constantly saying. I'm exactly like other military officers. How many officers do you know? Is that a compliment or is that? <laughs> and then, then when I became an admiral here in Seattle, people were always saying to me, well, you're not like other admirals. And I said, well, really? Well, how many admirals do you know? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much like all the admirals I know. And, yeah. uh, you know, they don't expect us to have a sense of humor or be able to type or know how to drive or, uh, you know, I don't know what it is, but it's just that that separation between the culture. Right. And uh, it's not healthy and we need to find ways to overcome it. That's just one suggestion you could come up with many others. And uh, I think having military people like when I was here in uh, Seattle, I would encourage my troops to get involved in their churches, get involved in their children's schools get involved in the Little League, Cub Scouts, whatever's going on, and be part of the community so that they can have some interchange with people that aren't in the military and vice versa, and do some cross-pollinization of ideas, because it's really important. I, I think a lot of people that aren't in the military and don't have any contact think we're all like uh, hardcore professional killers and uh, we got no conscience or whatever. I think it comes out of, out of the movies. <laughs> yeah. I'll leave with this. People, you know, there's some movies about the military that are pretty accurate and honest. I, I think that, uh, what was that one called about? The, the Hurt Locker. Yeah. Oh, man, that was intense, but that was, I mean, that was, that was pretty honest. The best movie about the military when I was in the military was actually Top Gun. And people go, oh, no way. I'm sorry. That was what the culture is like. People don't <laughs> think we're that loosey-goosey and, you know, flipping about things. Military guys, when they're in battle, they, if you don't have a sense of humor and you're fighting, you're going to lose the war. Yeah. You, you know that movie? Did you see the movie The Martian? Mm-hmm. It's yep. a great movie with, uh, oh, what's that? Matt Damon. Matt Damon, Stranded on Mars. But in the scene where they have the terrible storm, windstorm on Mars, and things are going to hell in a handbasket, they're all joking with each other, you know? And that I loved it because that is exactly the way the military is. And the woman who played the commanding officer of that mission, she was perfect. I mean, she just nailed what a good CO is supposed to be like. You know, she didn't decide on her own what to do. She said, you know, what do you all want to do? And they all voted yes. And she said, okay, let's go get our boy. You know, yeah. that was, uh, well, yeah, I mean, we'll talk, it up. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk with screenwriters who have written law enforcement movies, police procedurals, oh, <laughs> but never been in law enforcement. And they'll find out that I was I'm like, oh, you read my script. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I can't figure out a way to say no politely. No one's actually <laughs> ever ended up. Tom, Tom Clancy was so popular is because he really, for a guy who never served in the military, he gets the dialect, he gets the culture, he really kind of portrays it very accurately. Yeah, a lot of other I think he's done his research, you know, I think he's talked it. to enough guys. Yeah. yeah.
Well, and that's what anyway, I'll tell I'm them. excited for Top Gun Maverick coming out. Uh, there's going to be an, another wave of recruits into the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> we know how good fighter pilots we can get. Yeah, probably do better for the Navy than uh, like Navy SEALs with Charlie Sheen did. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but as we're talking, you know, we always do like to talk about that transition out of the military and for you know, people who may be going through that now, or, you know, even Vietnam vets who, you know, some of these guys we talked to hadn't talked for 50 years, just never talked about it. And that was kind of our genesis for, for how we followed the movie of, of seeing those results of having talked to them. Um, like I said, you, you have a, a much higher overview um, from your role as an admiral and, and as a teacher. Um, what advice would you have for people maybe either transitioning now or maybe you haven't ever talked um, no i'll tell you you're right it's one of the hardest things i ever did and um mm. i think it's partly because you have an unlimited choice you know you're like at oh, a buffet right. that buffet table that's a mile wide and uh you know you could do anything you want to do the problem is narrowing it down the toughest question you get when you're retiring is what do you want to do and you know we might have some general idea I had some general ideas, but they weren't even close. So the advice I give young people is try to find somebody that has a job and you go, wow, I'd really like to have that job. That's the job I would really like to have. Then ask them if you could sit down and talk to them because people are happy to talk to you. And when they find out you want to have a job like them or be like them, they think, wow, that guy must be pretty smart. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the people don't go, no, I don't have time for you. They're happy to talk to you. And learn how to describe that job really well in 15 to 20 seconds. So that when somebody says, what do you want to do? You can say, I want to be this. And yeah. I want to do this. And you never know because eventually you're going to find somebody that says, wow, I know somebody that needs somebody to do that. I know somebody that needs somebody just like you. And uh, that, that's kind of the first step. The second thing I would tell them is you may find out you don't really like it as much as you thought you would. Don't be afraid to change jobs. If you spend a career in the military, which is we say nowadays 20 to 35 years, uh, you're not used to changing jobs. You're used to going where you're told and feeling pretty good about the fact that you got to move and you didn't lose your pay or anything, you know. Well, you have to take some risk. Uh, two things I would say, it's easier to find a job when you have a job. So once you have a job, then if you don't like it, start looking for another job before you quit. Uh, and second thing, remember, in every job, there's two things you get that are the most important. Number one is experience, whether it's good experience or bad experience, doesn't matter. And number two is a good recommendation for your next job. So make sure you leave on a basis where you're going to get a good recommendation for your next job. Uh, in my own case, it took me a while, and I finally found out that I really liked teaching. I didn't expect I would like teaching at all, but I was asked to teach at the University of Washington, and it turned out that I really enjoyed it, and I kept at it as long as I could. And people asked me when I was going to quit there, and I said, when I leave the, the day I leave the campus in a bad mood, I'll quit. And I never left the campus in a bad mood, unfortunately. I don't know how you could leave UW in a bad mood. <laughs> yeah, I know. And the students are just great, especially the grad students. The undergrads all think they're smarter than the profs. 
but the grad students are mostly smart enough to know that you're there for a reason and so are they and you work together to learn stuff and uh, but you know I had a stroke a few years ago and I didn't think I had the stamina to really deliver the product to the students so kind of took a step back and it took me four tries to finally retire but I'm comfortable with it now anyway it's not easy, and you're right to ask that question. So I don't know if you've had that similar advice from other people, but no, that is good advice, and it actually highlight. And also, yeah. there's a lot of help out there. And yeah, and, and to see. to dive into one of the things you're saying, like I go up to Seattle U and do their career counseling night and talk to students, and you know, it's usually so I love it. I love it when there's sophomores there, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, people actually thinking ahead. But so often it's juniors in their final semester who are graduating in three months and are like, oh, my God, like, tell me everything, you know, can you introduce me to people? I'm like, no. OK, we got some work to do here. And, yeah. you know, it, it just like I wish you would have come to me last year. Well, we fortunately, couldn't. we're in a time of uh, economic transition right now. I'm a I'm a weird person because I have degrees in both economics and engineering. So people in both fields think I've gone over to the dark side <laughs> anyway. Um, but for people getting out of the military right now, job opportunities are like through the roof. I mean, there's so much opportunity and military people are in demand across the board. So this is a great time uh, to be retiring from the military and looking for another job because you could pick your location and, uh, you know, climate and, you're the kind of company you want to work for. And yeah. some companies, uh, you know, two local companies, well, three local companies that come to mind, uh, Amazon, Starbucks, and Microsoft, they just put a premium on military people. I mean, you walk in the door and tell them you're just coming out of the military, they say, have a seat. <laughs> you know, yep. they they got a place for you. They know how to use you. Uh, they, they know how to interpret your skills that you bring from the military. And you'll find more and more companies like that. I mean, I just mentioned those three local companies because Boeing's another one, a local company that yep. military guys go to uh, and uh, do well. So there, and there are companies yeah. like that all around the country that want military people in the door because they know what they bring to the table. And, and that is they show up on time, ready to go to work with a positive attitude and they don't define their job narrowly they'll do whatever needs to be done to get the job accomplished. That's what yeah. the military teaches you. And and as they're transitioning though, they can't, don't wait until the day you're you're out and <laughs> like, I got to find a job. Like you can start laying this groundwork, like you're saying, is yeah. find yeah. what you want to be and, and start looking at it. You know, have a have an eye on the horizon type One, of- Any military guys that are still on active duty listening to this, I'll tell you two things. Number one, what, Dave just said it's true. You should plan ahead, but don't beat yourself up if you don't have a job the day you retire. It's okay to take your time. The military retirement is way better than I ever thought it was. And I'm not just saying that because I'm an admiral. The things I value most about the military retirement, uh, everybody gets medical care. The medical care is so freaking outstanding. You know, it's become a political whipping boy in this country to talk about, oh, we don't want government health care. Well, I've been in a government health care system my whole life, and it's been pretty damn good. 
and they're taking great care of me now and I'm a much harder project. And, uh, <laughs> the other thing is uh, the commissary and exchange benefits are way better than you realize when you're on active duty. Yeah. And once you get retired and you start looking around the civilian marketplace, you realize, yeah, you know, you can save a lot of money shopping at the commissary and exchange. And uh, the having that steady income to fall back on if you do have to move or change jobs or something like that, it's really beneficial. So you you bring so much to the table as a military retiree or even if you didn't retire, if you're leaving the service after one enlistment or two enlistments or even 10 or 12 years, uh, you're in demand, yeah. you're in demand, so. Well, knowing how to show up on time is a um, <laughs> yeah. an old and dying art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my father-in-law said for his restaurant, they'll line up, you know, they'll have six people set up for interviews and maybe two will show up. Right. Uh, like, <laughs> right. So. Yeah. Well, Admiral, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Um, Dustin, I, I, I uh, usually don't want to uh, steal your thunder if you had anything else. No, but. I was, I was going to say, you know, Admiral, usually we have, um, usually we have the, uh, we want to give you the opportunity to talk about anything that you've got on your chest that you want to get off your chest. Uh, if you've got anything that we haven't covered today that you want to talk about, we'd love to hear it. Holy cow. <laughs> oh you know you, there's there's can wait, you ask there, that more open-ended yeah. yeah there is one question that i have which is okay. as an as an engineer are you as excited about the last two years of quarantine that every engineer in the world has had as i am because <laughs> it, it's really exciting the idea that everybody got to go home and like work on putter around on their own stuff is like that's like 1910 stuff like that's i know it's it's, it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of all that yeah. We may have some some new great companies that emerge from the pandemic uh, because engineers and uh, IT guys had time on their hands. Yeah. And uh, it'll be fun. I, I It's going to be interesting to see how the culture transforms. Everybody thinks we're going to, quote, go back to normal. We're not going to go back to normal. No, no, things are never going to be like they were before. No. We've learned all kinds of new things like, you know, telemedicine is actually a good thing. And it's okay to have a Zoom meeting. Yeah. Uh, yep. You don't necessarily want to do it all the time, but. Uh, well, but all the big companies in New York are letting go of their leases because they don't need to have well, people come to the office you know, all the time. Both of my sons are now working from home and they travel out to their, you know, the, com the other parts of the company that they work with. But uh, one of my sons is a financial analyst in the, for a company in San Francisco. And the biggest bill they had to pay every year was their real estate lease downtown San Francisco. And they went, yep. you know, we don't really, we can cut back on that. So they, they cut their space by about 75%. And uh, that's helping their bottom line. But yeah. there, it's going to be transformative the way things are changing. Yep. I, I think we need to realize the military needs to change too. You probably read in the papers, there's been some debate in the Marine Corps, the Marine, Marine Corps mm -hmm. trying to change. And a lot of my... A lot of the guys are writing and complaining about it are friends of mine <laughs> from my generation. And, uh, you know, they have included some of my Naval Academy classmates. Uh, they have, they all have a point, but, uh, none of us knows exactly. We don't know what the future is going to bring. This would be my last point. Yeah. 
How much did the world change in the last 10 years? Holy cow. Well, it's human nature to think that the world is going to change just as much in the next 10 years. It's not. It's going to change 10 times more. Yeah. Ten, we're on an exponential curve. And uh, we are going to have a hard time keeping up with the pace of change. So I'm glad I'm obsolete. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I think what you guys are doing is great. And I, I thank you for this opportunity to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to our audience for uh, being with us once again here in season three. So we keep plugging along. Um, if you, if you, well, I'm going to assume you enjoyed this episode. If you're still here listening, uh, make sure to give us a like, give us a follow, tell your friends, tell your enemies if they'll listen. We, we really, you know, are equal opportunity. Um, but thank you once again, uh, Dustin. Time for your joke that I'm going to. Oh cut yeah, off I got one for you. This week. It's uh, it's a knock knock joke. Um, yeah. Knock uh, knock. Go and stay on the line, Bill. We're just going to cut this here, but then we'll do a little wrap up. Knock, <laughs> knock. Who's there? <laughs> wow. You've been listening to the Know Their Story podcast. If you made it this far, we must be doing something right. Let us know by subscribing to our channel. And think about sitting down with the veterans in your life, because saying thank you for your service should be the beginning of the conversation, not the end.